Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are excited this week to continue our study of the book of Genesis, and this week we are on lesson number four, which is about the flood. We've come a long way. We've looked at the the perfect creation. We've looked at the fall, and now things go very far south. We're excited this week to have a special guest with us, Dr. Alan Parker. He is a professor at the School of Religion at Southern Adventist University. Alan, it's great to have you with us today. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to our study of God's Word. So, the flood. Things got bad, and now they're getting really, really bad. And this week we go through the flood. It's several chapters in the Bible, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. And we're looking at an event in the history of the world that really changed things dramatically. But the flood, some people say, well, it didn't happen at all. Others say, well, it was a local flood. Others say it was a worldwide flood. There's there's a gamut of ideas out there about, about the flood. What kind of flood does the Bible picture having taken place? Well, the Bible is very clear that it affects everyone. It is worldwide. And we know that because it uses the words, the words all, every, or under heaven over 60 times. So you have these multiple references that every creature is destroyed. And not only that, it says that it was 15 cubits above the highest mountain. And so we have extensive evidence from the Bible that this is not just a local event. This is a worldwide event. And so I would say just from the Bible alone, uh, we would have to conclude this is a universal flood. But we also have good evidence from geology. So for instance, there are marine fossils on top of mountains. So how do you get marine animals from the bottom of the sea to the top of the mountain unless you've got some kind of worldwide flood? And then on top of that, we've got these strata, the layers of the earth that stretch all the way across the United States. So layers are laid down when you have sand or mud that's rapidly deposited. So how do you get the same sand, the same layer across all of the United States? And the same thing, the white cliffs of Dover, you've got those white limestone, you find that in the Middle East, you find it in the Midwest, you find it in Australia. How do you get the same kind of rock everywhere across the world without a worldwide flood. So I think the evidence is pretty strong for that. It's incredibly strong. And it seems like the more evidence is unearthed, pardon the pun, <laughs> but the more evidence is unearthed, the more we find that, that it does corroborate that idea. Yeah, very much so. Now, of course, when geologists look at this, they have a different time frame. But I think the evidence for the flood is remarkable. And one of the most remarkable evidences for me is that these, these strata these layers have no signs of erosion. So if they were laid down over millions of years, you'd have where a, a, a gully went through it of a river, you'd have where a tree grew there, but there's none of that. They're completely flat, which means that they were deposited rapidly one after the next. Which, which is pretty powerful. Which is what a flood predicts. I, exactly. So we're talking about a flood that covered the entire earth. If God started off with making everything good, good, and very good, why did, why, how did we get to the point where God said, all right, the best thing I can do in this situation is to just wipe life from the, the face of the planet and essentially start over? What, what happened? I, I think uh, that's, that's a tough one when we look at it. How would you move from this perfect good creation to a situation where in, in Genesis 6 verse 5, it says that there was great wickedness and there, the, there was evil continually. 
Um, and this word for evil, ra, in the Hebrew is a very negative sound. It's like ra, it's evil, you know. And here is this evil that's, that's affected everything. It says every thought of their hearts was evil. And I just have to look at some of the horrifying images that we've had coming out of Ukraine. And when you, when you see the evil that's been done, imagine if every person was like that. Imagine if there was no moral outrage. And so God reaches a point where he regrets. And that word regret really means he, he looks at it and he contemplates it and he wishes it was not like this. And, and the closest I can come to this feeling is uh, when I think about when we had to put our dog down because it had some kind of disease that took over its whole body and we took it to the vet. And I, if you've had an, a pet like this, you know what I'm talking about. You're crying. You're, uh, my, my son is bawling his eyes out. And we're having to say goodbye to our animal because there's no way we can save it. That's the picture we have in here. It says it grieved God to his heart. And I, I don't see this as a mad, raging God. I see this as the end of the road. I can't do anything to save what's happened here. And we look at the results of it, and we see in in the strata that you mentioned how many millions of of creatures came to an end. Their lives came to an end, and and yet he didn't wipe off all life from the planet because you have Noah, and you have Noah's family. So, what was it that made what was it that made Noah worth saving? Why why did he make it when others didn't? What differentiated him? from the many millions, probably millions of people who were on the planet who, who didn't make the proverbial cut? Absolutely. And I think that's a great question because they're all evil, but suddenly it introduces Noah. And I think in 6 verse 8, it does it very powerfully. So it says here, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Almost makes you want to start singing the song, right? <laughs> so here, Noah finds grace. Notice before he's described in positive glowing terms, it simply describes that Noah found grace. He didn't win grace. He didn't deserve grace. He simply found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so God was putting his grace out on the earth, but Noah was the only one who found it. The others were ignoring it. They weren't paying attention to it. Noah found it. And because he found grace, It says he was perfect in his generations in verse 9. And it says, and Noah walked with God. So I think this is the the fundamental distinction between Noah and the people who are around him. Noah walked with God. He responded to that grace. We have a pathway before us. Uh, there's, There's a pathway where we can do our own thing and walk our own way. And then there's a path where we walk with Jesus. And at any moment in life, you're making those decisions. Am I going to do what I want to do, or am I going to do what Jesus has asked me to do? I was uh, late for church one day with my wife, and I was a little agitated. And so she finally gets in the car, and I take off because I want to make sure we're on time. But she can see I'm angry, and she can see I'm frustrated, and she can see that I'm going way over the speed limit. So she says, can we please just slow down? And I did what any red-blooded male would do. I slowed down to 10 miles an hour because I was going to show her that I can go slow. You want me to go slow? I'll go slow. And then she asked me, she says, so are you being like Jesus right now? (laughs) 
I was like, no. And then I realized what I was doing. I, I was acting in my own flesh, in my own way. And I think every day we have an opportunity to decide, do we walk with God like Noah? Or do we simply do what we want to do on our own? So Noah made a decision to walk with God. We, we looked recently at Enoch. Enoch also walked with God. Of course, Christ walked with his father. So we've got some, some pretty powerful examples of, of people in the past who have, who have walked with God by his grace. It's only by his grace that we can, that we can do that. We're responding to that grace. That's right. You know, it says here that, that Noah prepared an ark. In, in verse 14 of, of chapter 6, he, he's told, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch. And so God goes into great detail on how to make this, this ark. What, what is the significance of this ark that we read about in, in the flood story of Genesis? Other than a great story that we've heard for many years, and we've seen some, some cute little children's drawings little, of the... Little giraffe sticks his yes, head out right, the top. Yes, that's right, sticking out the top. And, and there's Noah, who, who's got this nice little beard, and he's standing there, and he's doing all this stuff. How is that applicable to us today? In, in real-world terms, what does this story tell us? Yeah, I, I think that this uh, word arc is important because it's the same word that is used for what Moses floated in, you know, that little basket? So here you've got this big ark and you've got a little basket and both are doing the same thing. The big ark is really big. Um, it is over 500 feet long. It is more than 50 feet high. Uh, 500 feet long is one and a half lengths of a football field. It's three uh, space shuttles laid, you know, uh, tail to end, uh, all down together. So it's big. Uh, it's In fact, it's as big as a wooden ship can go. So God knew perfectly what was the maximum space that he could fit. He went to maximum space that he could fit in as many animals and people as possible. So there's a big ark saving people, saving animals. And there's a little ark saving baby Moses. So what this means is that God is preparing a place to save people. And he's preparing for people to come into it in order so that when the world is raging, when there's destruction, they can be safe, whether it's big or whether it's small. And for me, that ark represents the church. The church is a place that God has prepared. He designed it just like he designed that ancient ark. And whether you're in a big church or a small church, it's a refuge against all of the destruction taking place. And I know after COVID, some people are like, I don't feel like going to church. I want to stay at home and just watch it on TV. Maybe some of you are watching on TV right now and uh, you're, you're sensing this is a safe place, but you need community. And whether you go to a big church or a small church, being part of that community is going to save you. And, and I've watched as people have stopped coming to church and I've seen as their faith begins to go down. Uh, we need to be with others and we need to stay in the ark. So I think the ark is really representative of a place where God's grace is poured out. So do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. You have no doubt uh, come across that scripture uh, as well as we. And, and God knows that we need that community. He knows that we need that safety. Uh, and, and he makes it available to us. So we just have to decide whether we want to take a him up on that. Have you ever lived with a lot of animals? I have four in my house, and I know what the four of them are capable of doing, you know, hair and smells and uh, the things they produce. 
So imagine a whole ark full of this. Sometimes the church stinks, <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not the best place to be. And we do our best to clean it up, to make it the best it can be. But you put that many people together with all of their problems, the church can stink. Hang in there because this is where God wants you to be. That's right. I'm sure the ark from time to time became aromatic. <laughs> but, and, and, and those inside the ark could have left. But I expect they're probably glad they didn't. It was worth sticking it out. And it's the same way with us today. Uh, even if you're facing some challenges and there are some imperfect people in church, I'll, I'll just let you know, churches are not full of perfect people. Uh, churches are full of sinners who are in need of the grace of Christ. And if you're there, it's a good place to stay. And try to make it a better place by your participation. We are looking at the flood today, and we are digging into the book of Genesis, which you're well aware by now. I want to encourage you to pick up the companion book to our quarter's study guide on the book of Genesis. It is also called Genesis by Jacques Ducan. That's itiswritten.shop. Pick that up, and we are certain that it will be a blessing to you. It will add more to your study of the book of Genesis. If you're reading the, the study guide for the quarter, you're watching these programs, and you are reading the companion book, you will be blessed as you study the book of Genesis. We're going to be back in just a moment as we continue our study of the flood in lesson number four. When people think of India, they often think of the Taj Mahal or Indian food. But what you probably won't think about is the staggering number of blind people that live in India. Sadly, more than 15 million blind call India home. And it doesn't have to be that way because many of India's blind could see again if only they could afford cataract surgery. Today, we are asking you to donate to this life-changing work. It takes just $75 to give one person the precious gift of sight. To donate, please visit our special website, itiswritten.com forward slash eyes for India, or call us. Our number is 1-844-974-8836. That's 1-844-974-8836. For only $75, you can open the eyes of the blind. Call today, 1-844-974-8836. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're here looking at lesson number four, The Flood, and talking with Alan Parker, Dr. Alan Parker, who is a professor again at Southern Adventist University in the School of Religion. Thanks again for giving us your insights here into The Flood in the book of Genesis. It's a fascinating story. It really is, and we're going to keep digging into it. We're in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9 right now. We're not that far into the book of Genesis, but we've covered a lot of ground historically already. How does the flood connect us back to the very beginning, back to creation? What sort of uh, similarities, what sort of connections do we see there? Yeah, there's some very obvious connections that we find here. For instance, when the Genesis story begins, you begin with the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And then you have light that's produced. Then you have the separation of the waters above from the waters below. That's the atmospheric waters from the seas. And then you have the separation of the sea from the land and the, the production of plants and so on. And then following that, you have all the animals that are produced. 
And so when you think of that, and then you go to the flood story, you notice that all of this goes in the reverse direction. So for instance, the waters above suddenly come down and meet the waters below. So the waters are coming up from the ground, waters are coming down from the heavens first time, and then you have the disappearing, disappearance of land, you have the destruction of all the plants, and you have the destruction of the animals, and even the destruction of human beings. So this is the opposite of creation. So everything that creation built up is now being reversed. And that could be the end of the story. You know, like, this is it. <laughs> we, we have demolished everything. There's nothing left. God can just hit reset. But he doesn't just do that. In the midst of that, he saves a remnant, a remnant of the animals, a remnant of human beings. Because God doesn't just want to start over. He wants to make right what's wrong. And so that, that's what's going on here. And so he starts with a new creation. And just like you had the Spirit moving over the face of the waters, in chapter 8, verse 1, you find that God remembers his creation. doesn't mean he forgot. It's like, oh yeah, I've got Noah down there. <laughs> I better take care of him. The remembering means that he remembers uh, that covenant that he made with humanity right at the beginning. And that remembrance brings him to action. It, it reminds him of his faithfulness to us. It brings him to action on behalf of Noah. And then what do you have again? A wind that blows that creates the land. Just like you had the spirit at the beginning, and it's the same word, ruach. The ruach at the beginning of God creates uh, God's creative work. And then you have the ruach, the wind of God, that creates the land. All because God is faithful. So creation in reverse, but with this remnant that he's, that he's preserving down through this experience this incredible experience. Thinking about what it must have been like for Noah there in the ark. Uh, we, we talked about it maybe not being a perfect environment, but the safest environment available. Maybe there were, uh, he wasn't alone in there. He had some family members. There may have been some, some challenges and struggles from time to time in there, the animals and so forth. But he was a very patient individual. Yes. What, how patient was he and what what can we take from this living in our day? Well, yeah, we talk about the patience of Job, and I think we really should speak about the patience of Noah. You've done evangelism like I have. 120 years, and the only people who respond are your family. You know, I've had one meeting when no one responded, and it was discouraging. I can't imagine 120 years of that. So that patience begins right there. The patience also begins when uh, they're led into the ark by God leading them there. Then they wait in the ark, not knowing what's going to happen. Then they have to spend months in the ark, almost a year in that ark. So there you're celebrating the birthdays, you're wondering what's going to happen. Noah's patience is also seen that right at the end, he's kind of testing. Is it time to come out? Remember, he sends out a raven. And then he sends out a dove. Uh, the dove comes back and the raven doesn't because the raven can eat on the dead flesh that's in the mountains. But the dove is looking down into the valleys for something that it can find in the valleys. So he kind of knows when the, when the dove doesn't come back that it's time to go out. But he's patient again because it says he waits for God to open the door. And so I think all the way along, if it was me, I'd be pushing things. Let's go faster. Let's get more people. Let's get in the ark. Let's get out of the ark. And he doesn't. He just waits. 
and he's waiting for God to show him what to do. Sort of reminds me of the end of time, how it says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. And that word patience really means patient endurance. Here are the people who are going to hold on to God. They're going to do what God says. They're going to they're going to follow whatever God tells them to do, and they're going to wait on that instead of getting impatient and saying, let's, let's do it our own way. So I have a lot to learn when it comes to patience, and, and Noah teaches me quite a bit here. Uh, he does, I think, for all of us, and lessons, again, that we can take and should take to heart today. Here's the patience of the saints. That is absolutely a verse that applies to us today. Uh, just a, a beautiful picture. We spoke about some of the animals that went into the ark. They went in, you know, I often ask when I'm, as you mentioned, doing evangelism, I ask the the crowd, when the animals went into the ark, what numbers did they go in by? And everybody, every time, they went in by twos, which is partially correct because they went in by twos, and it says also sevens as well. But what about the, the clean and the unclean animals? What significance is there to that when the the ark came to rest and Noah and the animals came out, there were sacrifices. What's the significance here? Yes, so the first thing that happens when they get out of the ark, they worship God and they sacrifice animals. Now, if you were sacrificing an animal and there were only two of them, then they can't continue to procreate. You You need to have more than two. So God in his wisdom allows some animals to go in by sevens, as you mentioned. And these animals are called clean animals right there in the text. Uh, this shows us that from the beginning, God distinguished between clean and unclean animals, that when God allowed the eating of flesh, he said, I'm going to allow you to only eat certain kinds of animals um, rather than just any animal you choose. And so right here in Genesis, we see this distinction way before the people of Israel in, and way before Leviticus 11. Uh, this is a distinction that God creates. And he, he also allows for sacrifices because the sacrifice had, had two purposes. One, it was to worship God, but some of that sacrifice was also used for the priests and would be a way for maintaining the ministry of the priests. And so he's very clear. You can eat these, but you can't eat these. So clean and unclean long before Jews, long <laughs> right. before Leviticus 11, long before that. God knows what, what we need to be healthy and, well, what it takes to be unhealthy as well. But when we're taking a look at the story of Noah and the flood, there's one element, I think, that, that so frequently we connect with this story, and appropriately so, and that is a rainbow. What does the rainbow signify, and what message of hope, hopefully, can we take away from the story of the flood, it's, everything has been wiped out with the exception of a, a small group of, of survivors. But everything else that the world was familiar with is wiped out. And then God gives us this rainbow that you and I can still see on a, on a sunny day uh, when, the, when the sun is shining just right on the rain. It's still around today. What does the rainbow speak to us today? Yeah, it's a little different from the way the rainbow is sometimes used today. And the, the point of this rainbow is exactly this. After the storm, when God's light shines through, you see the rainbow. And the rainbow is a reminder of God's promise. Remember in Genesis 8 verse 1, it says God remembered Noah. And I, I, 
This remembered means he is reminded of his covenant of faithfulness. I mentioned earlier that it doesn't mean that God forgot Noah, like, oh, look, there he is. It's more like the kind of remembrance that happens, for instance, when I am with my, let's say I'm in front of my computer, and something pops up with a woman with not many clothes on. I'm going to close that down immediately because I remember my wife. It doesn't mean I forgot her. It means that I'm reminded of my faithfulness. My faithfulness moves me to action. So in the same way, as God remembers Noah, his faithfulness moves him to action. Like, I'm going to put this promise that here's my covenant. I will save you. I will always save you. Some of us are going through storms, and we think God has forgotten us. And yet here comes this reminder, this promise. I will save you. I'm faithful to my covenant. I know who you are. You're engraved on the palms of my hands. And there's not a single situation that you're going through that I don't know about. And here's my rainbow as a sign that I'm with you always. So I think that's, that's the initial meaning of it. It's something that we can be reminded of his faithfulness and his love and his care. We've looked this week at the, at the story of the flood. A, a disaster, and yet at the same time, a, a story full of hope. Any final thoughts in the, in the minute or so that we have left here on, on what <laughs> the flood is all about? What can we grab a hold of? What can we cling to when we're going through, well, as you mentioned, the storms of life and the challenges of life? What hope does God give us in the story of the flood? So, so the flood, Jesus said... As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And he said, during the days of Noah, they ate, they drank, they married, they gave him marriage. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But when you do them to the neglect of God, you're in trouble, you're in danger. So this story is a reminder that at the end of time, our world is going to be headed in the same direction. We're going to forget God. There's going to be those who walk with God and those who just do whatever they want to do on their own. Uh, Someone called it moral therapeutic deism. I'll basically live a good life. Spirituality will be therapeutic to me, healing. And I'll live without reference to God. He won't have any immediate connection with my world. And that's where people are headed now. And this story is an appeal, like, wake up, get ready. I just came back from Ukraine. I have a Ukrainian daughter. And I went there to see what help we could give. And I noticed person after person, they said, man, we we weren't expecting this war. They had told us about it, but we weren't expecting it. And and for him to actually invade, and we had to leave our families at the last minute and leave our homes, it, it took them by surprise. That's the message of Jesus. When we look at the flood, yes, God is faithful, but a time is coming when we have to choose. And uh, it could take us unawares. Uh, don't be caught napping when that flood comes. Put yourself in Jesus now. Walk with Jesus now so that you can be safe in that ark when the destruction comes. That's a powerful message for all of us to remember. The time is really short as you look at what's happening in the world today and what Jesus told us would happen. Not much time left. The door of the ark is soon to close, but by God's grace, you and I and others can be ready for that day when Jesus comes. Thanks for joining us today for Sabbath School. We'll be back again next week as we continue our journey through the book of 
Genesis. God bless you and we'll see you then.